A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything, has its own history, like apples, sliding, and dirt. Oh, I love the idea of doing a history of dirt. A colleague of mine, the brilliant James Gregory, has a a new module on Victorian filth, uh, which is basically all <laughs> about dirt and dust and sewerage. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. Um, or dust must and rust. Rust is, in fact, a very hard-hat economic history. So it's about the rust belt uh, in America. Or lust, trust and <laughs> sust. Sust is the history of working things out. We've sussed it. We've sussed this game. However, uh, that is to digress beautifully, as always, because we will be following the links as our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of pockets is in fact all about emergencies during World War II, or that the history of blood is about recruitment and Winston Churchill. If you want to hear more about that, you can find out all about it in our Histories of the Unexpected World War II book. Ooh. Brilliant stocking filler for Christmas, I think. Yeah, do you know what? I can't believe we didn't do a history of rust in that. It would have been brilliant. Um, I know, I, we should maybe do rust, shouldn't we? And sliding. Yep. Rust and sliding is a really, I'm really having trouble one. with rust at the moment. Oh, you? Mm. Yes, all over the place. Everything seems to be rusting. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, uh, maybe that's just me. <laughs> I need a good oiling, I think. But who are you? Who is this man who needs oiling? The man not sitting opposite me. We're, um, we're, we're still not in the recording studio. Let's just say that if the present... If the present, if today, the very today in which you are listening to this podcast, if today was a prisoner of war camp, this man would be tunnelling out to the past and he would be bringing in supplies to help everyone. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Hello, hello. hello Sam, it, it amazes me how our minds across town are on almost exactly the same wavelength. <laughs> because the man not sitting opposite me, because I am coming to you from the research cave uh, across town in Exeter. Well, let's just say, um, if he were a great escape artist, he would be the Steve McQueen mm. of running away. Yes, it's the <laughs> famous historical adventurer on his motorbike, Dr. Sam Willis. It's an interesting point, this, actually, at you having said that, because I, I envisage Steve McQueen and all of these great heroic World War II escape artists um, as it's, it's kind of like heroic escape rather than cowardly running away, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, I'm not... it is, and that, 
that's what I had. I, I saw you as this sort of as this heroic character, slightly sort of handsome and debonair, <laughs> uh, and sort of rugged with nice. it. Okay, good. You know, I mean, it was it was a totally positive, um, <laughs> totally positive thing. A positive running away. Um, yes, good. exactly. Um, I hope you've all tapped into the first episode of this edition in which we talked a little bit about slavery. I talked about James II running away during the Glorious Revolution, also all of his supporters running away and his daughter to join um, Prince William, which is slightly unfortunate, and many other aspects. And you started off with... What did you start knock, knock, with? Knock, knock, Ginger. Chickenelli. How could you forget? So, so do not, kids, uh, knock on somebody's door and then scarper. Uh, because you will just scare, you'll scare some people during lockdown. Yeah, uh, which is never a good thing. We kind of went round in circles, thinking it was it was it was harmless, and then realising it actually could have been quite dangerous and unpleasant. Yes. Um, yes. So that's interesting. Anyway, we've come back with number two uh, because we've got so much more to tell you about, and I think James, you're gonna gonna crack on first. Yes, absolutely. So I, we ended talking about uh, whipped Peter or Gordon. So this this. Um, African-American slave who escaped his Louisiana plantation, went on the run uh, for 10 days, ended up at a at a at a um, in Baton Rouge in a safe camp um, and had his back um, photographed. And it, it showed the, the terrible the terrible scars. Now, that was one example of slaves running away from the horrific conditions that they found themselves in. Um, but actually, there was a, a, a structural institution, I think you can you can call it, that actually enabled uh, slaves to escape. And it's called the Underground Railroad. And I read a couple of years ago a brilliant uh, novel uh, by Colston Whitehead, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, novelist called The Underground Railroad. Uh, and it really got me interested in this as a as a practice. Uh, if any of you are interested in learning anything about this, I think that's a brilliant place to start. Um, there are all sorts of historical accounts of it, but as a literary account of it, it's utterly captivating and compelling as a read and, and very justifiable winner of the Pulitzer Prize for that. But what he talks about is this institution of the Underground Railroad, which is basically a network of safe houses and secret routes dotted throughout the different states in the United States of America during the, the early to mid-19th century that was used by African-American slaves to escape into the North and into the, the, the free states, but also into above the American border into Canada. There's also evidence that they were also running down into, into Mexico and also into, into Florida. And slaves would be would be helped out um, by abolitionists, but also by religious groups. So people would 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 hide them and they'd know where to where they were safe. And Sam was talking in the last episode about the way in which the Internet is really great for primary source materials on this. There's a brilliant uh, website called archive.org, which over lockdown has been providing simply tens of thousands of out of copyright books for free, digitising them and allowing access. So go on that. You, If you just create an account, you can download all sorts of amazing uh, works at a time when people are finding it very difficult to get to libraries. It's allowing all sorts of access to historical material. And 
here I came across a book called The Underground Railroad Records, which was published in 1872 uh, by a man called William Still, who was known as the father of the Underground Railroad. And what's really telling about it in terms of its contents is its subtitle. And its subtitle is A Record of Facts, Authentic Narratives, Letters, etc., Narrating the Hardships, Hairbreath Escapes and Death Struggles of the Slaves in Their Efforts for Freedom, as related by themselves and others, or witnessed by the author together with sketches of some of the largest stockholders and most liberal aiders and advisers of the road. So the book contains the stories of around almost 650 slaves who escaped via the Underground Railroad. And it really is compelling reading. And I just want to read you one example here. Uh, a man called Robert Brown, alias Thomas Jones. And it describes him crossing the river on horseback in the middle of the night. In very desperate states, many new inventions were sought after by deep thinking and resolute slaves determined to be free at any cost. But it must here be admitted that in looking carefully over the more perilous methods resorted to, Robert Brown, alias Thomas Jones, stands second to none with regard to the deeds of bold daring. This hero escaped from Martinsburg, Virginia, in 1856. He was a man of medium size, mulatto, about 30 years of age, could read and write, and was naturally sharp-witted. He had formerly been owned by Colonel John F. Franny, whom Robert charged with various offences of a serious domestic character. Furthermore, he also alleged that his mistress was cruel to all the slaves, declaring that they could not live with her, that she had to hire servants. In order to effect his escape, Robert was obliged to swim the Potomac River on horseback on Christmas night, while the cold wind, storm and darkness were indescribably dismal, this daring bondman, rather than submit to his oppressor any longer, perilled his life as above stated. Where he crossed the river was about a half a mile wide. Where could be found in history a more noble and daring struggle for freedom? The wife of his bosom and his four children, only five days before he fled, were sold to a trader in Richmond, Virginia, for no other offence than simply because she had resisted the lustful designs of her master, being true to her own companion. After this poor slave mother and her children were cast into prison for sale, the husband and some of his friends tried hard to find a purchaser in the neighbourhood, but the malicious and brutal master refused to sell her, wishing to gratify his malice to the utmost and to punish his victims all that lay in his power, he sent them to the place above named. In this trying hour the severed and bleeding heart of the husband revolved to escape at all hazards, taking with him a likeness of his wife which he happened to have on hand and a lock of hair from her head, and from each of the children as mementos of his unbounded, though sundered, affection for them. After crossing the river, his wet clothing freezing to him, he rode all night, a distance of about forty miles. In the morning he left his faithful horse, tied to a fence, quite broken down. He then commenced his dreary journey on foot, 
cold and hungry in a strange place where it was quite unsafe to make known his condition and wants. Thus for a day or two, without food or shelter, he travelled until his feet were literally worn out, and in this condition he arrived in Harrisburg, where he found friends. Passing over many of the interesting incidents on the road, suffice it to say, he arrived safely in this city on New Year's night, 1857, about two hours before daybreak, the telegraph having announced his coming from Harrisburg, having been a week on the way. The night he arrived was very cold. Besides, the underground train that morning was about three hours behind time. In waiting for it, entirely out in the cold, a member of the Vigilance Committee thought he was frosted. But when he came to listen to the story of the fugitive suffering, his mind changed. Scarcely had Robert entered the house of one of the committee, where he was kindly received, when he took from his pocket his wife's likeness, speaking very touchingly while gazing upon it and showing it. Subsequently, in speaking of his family, he showed the locks of hair referred to, which he had carefully rolled up in paper separately. Unrolling them, he said, This is my wife's. This is from my oldest daughter, eleven years old. And this is from my next oldest. And this from the next. And this from my infant, only eight weeks old. These mementos he cherished with the utmost care as the last remains of his affectionate family. At the sight of these locks of hair so tenderly preserved, the member of the committee could fully appreciate the resolution of the fugitive in plunging into the Potomac on the back of a dumb beast in order to flee from a place and people who had made such barbarous havoc in his household. His wife, as represented by the likeness, was a fair complexion, prepossessing and good-looking, perhaps not over thirty-three years of age. And the book is absolutely full of similar examples like this that describe the plight of these poor people who are fleeing the conditions in which they find themselves. Yeah, it's it's really powerful stuff, isn't it? And I came across um, some uh, similar similar stuff actually, but relating to someone called Harriet Tubman, who is who is very well known as as one of the people who helped organise these slavery. These slave escapes. She was born a slave in Maryland in about 1820. And in 1848, so she's 28 years old, she decides to try and escape. No one else goes with her. They think it's too dangerous. But she makes her way north by this underground railroad. And she later then goes back to rescue the rest of her family. And that then is the first of 19 trips she makes to the south. Uh, and historians believe that she guided more than 300 slaves to freedom. And there's a little description here from Thomas Garrett. He, he's an interesting chap in his own right, actually. He's the son of a farmer born in the summer of 1789 in Delaware County. Uh, he's a Quaker. He's strongly opposed to slavery, um, later joins the Pennsylvania Abolition Society and writes about Harriet Tubman. No slave who placed himself under her care was ever arrested that I have heard of. She mostly had her regular stopping places on her route, but in one instance, when she had several stout men with her, some 30 miles below here, she said that God told her to stop, which she did, and then asked him what she must do. He told her to leave the road and turn to the left. She obeyed and soon came to a small stream of tide water. There was no boat, no bridge. She again inquired of her guide what she was to do. She was told to go through. 
It was cold in the month of March, but having confidence in her guide, she went in. The water came up to her armpits. The men refused to follow till they saw her safe on the opposite shore. They then followed, and if I mistake not, she had soon to wade a second stream. Soon after, which she came to a cabin of coloured people who took them all in, put them to bed and dried their clothes, ready to proceed next night on their journey. It's a wonderful little account there. Um, but it's, uh, there's a lot about religion in here um, with, uh, with the person who's writing it, Thomas Garrett, being a very devout Quaker. And interestingly, Harriet Tubman's story, and it's such a powerful story of her running away and helping others run away, has been used, it's been hijacked, it's been manipulated for, uh, uh, for, for decades by, by contemporary historians and um, not quite for centuries, but getting that way. Uh, it's really interesting and it also makes you realise just how powerful a escape story is. And if you, if you, I'd, I'd love to kind of work out what percentage of, of really exciting stories are actually escape stories. I should think a lot of them are. So I um, just wanted to say there, stop and think about the power of escape stories, of running away stories. Um, which definitely has got an influence on why so many of them have survived. And it also makes us think about all the ones that haven't survived. Um, this made me... Th- I was reading a paper the other day looking at um, more and more images of boats full of migrants coming across uh, coming across the Mediterranean. And it's one of the defining features of our, of our contemporary world, these crises worldwide, which are driving record migrations. And you've got um, Africans and Middle Easterners coming to Europe. You've got the Rohingya in, in Burma. They're trying to escape. Central Americans travelling to the US, Syria, Yemen, Burundi, Somalia, Iraq, so many places. And there are people undertaking risky journeys to find better lives and to find hope. Um, and it really struck a chord, this this thinking about lost voices actually um uh, because i've been to a rohingya camp in burma and i didn't know what it was when i was there and I, it's only something i've realized uh in in the last year or so i was making a film in 2016 for national geographic and one of the epodes um was uh was entitled japanese crocodile massacre uh, and it was an extraordinary story um but it's also about running away for different reasons You've got um, the the Allies have invaded Burma, so it's towards the end of the Second World War, and a unit of the Imperial Japanese Army is trying to escape, and they're trying to get away from somewhere called Ramri Island, and they're on the run. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And there are crocodile-infested waters between Ramry Island and the mainland. And a story survives. It actually gets into the Guinness Book of Records that it was the worst crocodile massacre in history. And we went there to investigate the truth of it, whether uh, this entire unit of Japanese soldiers was actually eaten by crocodiles and where the story came from. And it was fascinating in that there were very few uh, actual accounts we could get from the Japanese perspective. The only accounts came from um, English and American soldiers who were there at the time, many of whom were, were borderline hallucinating from malaria and wanted to find adventure and in stories in, in what they were going on. And it turns out to be primarily nonsense. But it, but it's nonsense for an interesting way. Anyway, the point is, there's a, there's a really interesting military retreat there, which I don't think many people have given that much focus to. I was particularly interested in it because my grandfather was fighting in Burma at the time. Um, but the, the other aspect to this particular running away was that while we were filming there, we went to an, an area of the coast where there were Japanese-constructed uh, military emplacements which were built to prevent, uh, to try and stop the invasion from the Allies. And one of them was in a um, refugee camp. And we went in there, we were taken through these huge uh, gates. It was um, very heavily guarded and inside were... Um, hundreds of, of Rohingya Muslims. Um, they're fascinating. A group of people, they have their own language, they've got their own culture, they, they, they claim they're descendants of the Arab traders and other groups who'd been in the region for generations, and yet they're increasingly finding themselves marginalised and, um, and, and threatened. Uh, so there was just some memories of, of going to that that camp, James. And I actually went look back and tried to find some photographs, and I've got a, an annoying gap in the spring of 2016, and it's as if my uh, my experience of going there was lost. So, but my mm. my own lost lost voice. Were you allowed to take photographs in the camp? Uh, no, <laughs> maybe that maybe that's yeah. reminding me. That's yeah. maybe that's why I didn't have any photos. Uh, um, and also made me think about these. I was going back to it. The the idea of these packed boats. And yes. there's an account in 1681. This is about the Huguenots. Is it Huguenot or Huguenot? I'm not sure. Huguenots. Huguenots. Um, so these are Protestants fleeing uh, persecution in France in the 1680s. And there's one account um, of a ship, the true Protestant Mercury, is crossing the channel with as many as 600 people on board it uh, trying to flee La Rochelle. And there are other similar examples of ships which are overcrowded um, and many of them which have few men in them, lots of them just travelling with women and children. Um, the Huguenots, of course, uh, come to the UK and then have a profound influence on all sorts of aspects of English life. Uh, I found a fascinating PhD on this, which was written in the 80s, but 
Um, Including glove manufacture. Glove manufacture, what, metalwork, <laughs> yes. decorative painting, art education, sculpture, architecture, woodwork and porcelain. Uh, those are the ones I came across. James, I'm sure you could tell us all about gloves. I shall hand over to you in a sec. But particularly clock making is something that I've come across because uh, being a maritime historian, I've done work before on John Harrison, who's the guy who solved the problem of longitude, the navigational problem of longitude. Uh, and he was a Huguenot, and he is one of these extraordinary skilled um, French artists, particularly in clockmaking, who, who who come across. And they they fundamentally change the history of England just because they're running away. So there's a, another great story there of, of fleeing, of running away, which we could spend hours talking about. But uh, I think, James, you, you probably want to say something about gloves, so I'm going to hand over to you. No, no, I mean... Not really, but I. But if if pushed, uh, I can do. So I think I think one of the one of the things that is transformative is that they enable a technological revolution in various kinds of artisanal manufacture, uh, and they are part of uh, lace making um, industries in in London in particular, which then feed into uh, the manufacture of gloves. So you've just basically got these very highly skilled. Uh, craftspeople, uh, men and women uh, who come across. But my final example was to take on this idea of of people fleeing persecution, uh, and of course, to you know, there, there's nothing uh, probably more famous than the um, the diaspora of of Jews, Jewish peoples uh, uh, in the 1930s, um, and. Hitler comes to power in 1933, and already that you know you from that point you have uh, German Jews looking to move out of the country, um, and there's something called the Havara Agreement, uh, which comes into being um, at this point, which allows German Jews and their finances to move and settle in Palestine. And you've got some people who, at that point, who who emigrate over there. Um, as we move into the uh, further into the 1930s, you've got Jews moving uh, to places, safer places around around Europe, over to the United States. You've got some uh, Jews sort of moving over uh, into into Britain, uh, and this leads to what I was going to, what I really want to talk about, which is about the Kindertransport. So the German, uh, basically, the it means uh, children's transport. So it is the the movement of children uh, into Britain uh, between eighty between nineteen thirty eight and nineteen thirty nine, and this is a period when we see almost ten thousand children fleeing. The persecution of Jews in Greater Germany. So here we're talking about the expanded Germany, uh, Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. Um, and there was some reluctance, you know, before 1938 to, to to allow large numbers of refugees into the country because you know one of the things that governments often say is that it will overburden the state but then what happens what changes minds is that on the 9th of November 1938 there is this outpouring of spontaneous violence against Jews throughout Germany uh, which we know now as Kristallnacht you know the night of broken glass and I think European opinion is just 
deeply shocked by this. There are then debates within Parliament in Britain and the decision is made on the 21st of November 1938 for Britain to take as many children as it can, you know, not to have a limit on it, um, provided they wouldn't be a burden on the state. And what we have is almost 10,000 children, 9,354 9, children come into Britain during this time through various schemes. They are housed with both Jewish and non-Jewish uh, families, foster homes. Uh, others live in hostels and farms. Um, and just imagine how deeply troubling this is to children. Either they've lost their parents or they're fleeing and leaving their parents behind. And imagine the trauma that this, this had on these, on these children. And many of them would never see their parents again. And I was doing a little bit of squirrelling around, googling around to try and find some uh, documentary sources on this. And I chanced upon the, um, the, the Imperial War Museum website. And the Imperial War Museum has a brilliant little exhibition uh, of objects that survive from these children who came across. Now, we talked a lot of times about how you reconstruct children's history. In fact, in the la last episode, you talked about the difficulty in reconstructing children's history um, from their own voices. But what we have here is souvenirs and ephemera from six children out of this nine and a half thousand uh, who come into Britain. Uh, and it's really striking the way in which we can use material culture like this to to get into the mindset and understanding of these young kids who came across. So the first one is Inga Pollack's doll. And it's a, a doll It's dressed up in Austrian national costume, uh, belonging to a little girl called Inga Jane Pollack. Um, um, she and her sister um, left Nazi-occupied Vienna in 1939. They settled in Cornwall, in Falmouth, and Inga takes this doll with her. The doll is called, she calls, Trixie. Uh, the doll is dressed in, as I said, in traditional Austrian clothing and was given to her by her mother as a present the year before, in 1938. And sadly, her mother and her grandmother uh, perish uh, during the, the war. The other, another example is a little drawing from a girl called Ruth Neumeyer, uh, who left Nazi Germany in, again in 1939 with her brother Raymond. And the, the picture um, depicts, it's on a musical score, and it depicts two trees with birds in them and a hammock slung between them and the daughter uh, playing a flute. And Ruth lives with a family in Cambridge. She and her brother wrote backwards and forwards to their parents, uh, Hans and Vera, and her father was a composer and a, a musical composition teacher. And he, so she writes this to him, she, you know, a very sort of simple but very sweet drawing on a musical score, um, you know, probably showing him that she's practising her musical instrument. But you get this idea 
you know, of some form of communication left and some kind of connection between them. Another one is a is a Steffi Carola Lasers puppet, which is a little um, cat puppet, little sort of glove puppet. Um, and Steffi uh, volunteered for the Kinder Transport and left Germany uh, in February 1939 for Britain. And it's a little Siamese cat puppet, which was given to her by her favourite uncle as something for her to take on this journey. Um, it was one of the only items that she was allowed to pack and take for herself. All the other stuff was packed for her. Um, and she lived until 1993. So we know quite a bit about her um, you know, from her reminiscences. We also have uh, a girl's jumper uh, that survives uh, from this period. We have a girl's exercise book, uh, Celia Horowitz's exercise book, uh, dated um, from, uh, what is it, uh, 30th of November uh, 1939. So we can see her at school. We have another girl uh, who uh, has a pair of ice skates uh, that she that she she had um, uh, so uh, so yes so you can see how um, this material culture these artifacts that these children brought across with them allow us to start thinking about their experience and what it was like to be persecuted to be separated from parents in order to survive and have a better life and you know you you think about um you know, you think about that from your own perspective as a parent. And it's something that, you know, the willingness to allow your children to escape and to flee and to be parted from them is something that must be one of the most, one of the most um, wonderful things that as a parent you can do in order to allow them to escape. Um, but also one of the most heartrending uh, things that you can possibly imagine. Yeah, all very moving stuff, isn't it? All very moving Yeah. Um, well, we're going to end there. I hope you enjoyed that, but I'm just going to slip one thing in, which I really want to do. Uh, this is, um, we never talked about escapism. It's a kind of metaphorical running away, the running oh. away in the mind. And there are so many ways you can explore this, but here's a cracker from 1941. This is the summer of 1941 by John Gillespie McGee, and he is a pilot, and he is in a Spitfire. And he... Um, writes this poem and he 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 puts it in a, in a letter to his parents and then it is he dies soon after and the parents pass the letter on to the curate of the church and from there it is reprinted in church publications it becomes gradually uh, better known within the religious community until a librarian at the library of congress finds it and publishes it in a poem so uh, not only is it an amazing kind of ode to escapism escaping the horrors of war as you were talking about james uh, but it's a lovely little story about how these things actually survive the fact that he only wrote this for his parents Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter-silvered wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things. You've not dreamed of, wheeled and soared and swung high in the silent, sunlit silence, hovering there. I've chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through footless halls of air. Up, up the long, delirious, burning blue... I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace. 
where never lark or ever eagle flew, and while with silent lifting mind I've trod the high untrespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. Bit of a magical escapism in the horrors of war there to finish it all off. Um, everyone, I hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, running Away is my new favourite episode. <laughs> Definitely. Brilliant, isn't it? Really, really good fun. Um, what should we do next? I was what about laughter? I want to do laughter. I do laughter. I, I've got a suggestion for you. Um, okay. With um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying, I wonder whether we should do judges. Ooh. Yeah. Judgment. Judgment. Or, uh, or taxes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I, I will take. We'll, we'll come back to that one. I will take up your challenge, and we'll do laughter. That'll be brilliant. Excellent. All right. Next Excellent. one's laughter, guys. Um, do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis, and I'm at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. Do please, do please check out everything you can see on historiesoftheunexpected.com. All about our series of books: books on the Tudors, books on the Vikings, books on World War Two, and the Romans, as well as our main book, Histories of the Unexpected. How everything has a history. We absolutely adored writing them. Seriously good fun. Do please just leave a re- review um, wherever you can, ideally on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts. Very helpful indeed. And we have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. Um, and anything you can offer us would be hugely appreciated to help us keep this podcast going. Thank you all so much for listening. We will be back with the history of laughter. Bye, guys. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.